People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. Now, I wonder if you remember the Oceanos, that remarkable story of the sinking of the Oceanos off the coast of East London, between East London and Durban, back in 1991. A book has been written called Against All Odds by Andrew Pike. And let me just remind you, in August 1991, excited holidaymakers boarded the Oceanos at East London for what they hoped would be a trip of a lifetime. Despite treacherous weather, the captain ordered the ship to set sail for Durban. And so began this ill-fated voyage. Hurricane-force winds and giant rogue waves aggravated the hostile storm. Soon, the ship started taking water. Panicked senior crew members scrambled into lifeboats, leaving the ship's evacuation to the onboard entertainers. And at one point, a musician manned the bridge, at another, a magician. Women and children clambered aboard lifeboats which were launched into terrifying seas, leaving their husbands behind, unsure if they would see each other again. After all the operational lifeboats had been utilized, 220 passengers and junior crew were left stranded on the rapidly sinking ship. During this catastrophe, the South African Air Force embarked on their biggest air rescue ever, with helicopter crews and Navy divers risking everything to evacuate the remaining passengers. And in this book, maritime lawyer Andrew Pike, who was part of the legal investigation into the Oceanus' sinking, recreates this compelling drama and the extraordinary heroism of what's been regarded as the greatest maritime rescue, certainly in South African history, and I dare say possibly among the greatest in the world. Well, Andrew, there's an introduction for you. So welcome and thank you for coming in. Thank you very much, Rodney, and greetings to your listeners. Well, I just want to say that Andrew is one of the most senior maritime lawyers here in South Africa with over 30 years' experience in the industry, and he's the head of the law firm Bowman's Ports, Transport and Logistics Sector. Andrew is a past president of the Maritime Law Association of South Africa and past board member of the Ports Regulator of South Africa. Ideally equipped and qualified, I would say, to write a book like this. But first of all, Andrew, I'm just intrigued to know why you wrote it. Was it something that we're burning? One of those things where you say this book has to be written. Something like that, Rodney. As you mentioned earlier, I was involved in the technical or legal investigation of the sinking. But I didn't have access, or not very much anyway, to the to the passengers, to the entertainers, and to the human aspect of the story. And while I've always known it to be a good story, it just seemed to me that it needed to be written down, and it was a story too good not to be told. Yeah. So it's bothered me for years, given that this was uh, almost 30 years ago and a few years ago I started thinking about it and then I started jotting some notes down and then started getting excited about it and then I gave a talk at a client function and suddenly people were asking me to talk more about it and to cut a long story short the deputy editor of the Sunday Tribune then persuaded me to do an article for them told me it was one of their most popular articles ever and 
demanded basically that I write this book, which <laughs> which I did. So that was the sort of kick I needed to to really get going. And it's been the most fascinating journey, uh, reconnecting with people involved, tracking them down all around the world. And um, I've I've had a lot of fun and really for the first time come to grips with just how traumatic this really was for people on board. You know, I, as I say, knew the sort of technical stuff, but, you know, the real drama was what happened on board. And um, for that, I'm grateful to have learned so much more about this. Before we get into the actual narrative stuff, um, there is a tremendous amount of detail that you obviously must have taken many, many months or perhaps even years to collate and to get all this into writing what, what has become really quite a gripping novel almost. The narrative reads so excitedly. Yeah. So what it's required me to do is find people scattered around the world, I have to say. There are passengers, survivors, entertainers, uh, defense force people in countries as far away as Canada, Australia. One of the heroes in the story, Moss Hills, is a cruise director on a ship in the Med. And so it's been quite a challenge to find them all, um, interview them. And my aim was to pull together all of the perspectives from all of the stakeholders who were involved, all of the people who were involved in the thing. And so obviously I couldn't interview every passenger, but I've taken a sample of passengers and a sample of entertainers and Air Force people and so on and put them together. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges, of course, is that memories have faded after all this time. Uh, People remember things in different timelines. And so I've had the challenge of trying to reconcile all of the timelines. (laughs) And, you know, and some people remember stuff a lot better, I suspect, than it in fact was. (laughs) And, and, And so, you know, dealing with conflicting information from different people and saying, well, what was the probability here? And then... Uh, making some sort of sensible guess about exactly what did happen and then turning that into a credible story. I'm just amazed at the detail that you seem to have. um, You talk about timelines and things, times of things happening on the ship, things people said. I'm sure maybe there was a bit of artistic license there in some of the dialogue, but it makes absolute sense, I thought anyway, and just... All the people that were involved in that massive operation with the helicopters and the other merchant vessels that were in the area, to collate all that, I mean, at the same time, it was clearly hugely exciting for you. Yeah, I've I've loved doing this. It It's sort of given a different perspective to the work that I do. And, um, you know, the whole sort of collation process and the timelines and the contradictions, some of them... I was so immersed in the book, it was really a a situation of, of, you know, not seeing the trees for the wood, (laughs) and and, uh, or the wood for the trees, rather. And and eventually, you know, working with a very good editor, she was able to say, but hang on a minute, you know, this doesn't quite tie up with that. And she was really impeccable, and I I was very grateful for, for her input. And you know, finally, we got we got things as as close to right as I think they are, and you're quite right with the dialogue. I 
I needed to recreate some of that dialogue, which itself took it took time because I wanted to be I wanted it to be credible and obviously aligned with the facts as they had been told to me, but make it something that was readable and that readers would be interested in. I think you've succeeded magnificently, and I'm going to ask you many, many more questions about this this disaster and this extraordinary rescue. But let's take our first music break. And, um, Andrew, what have you chosen? I'm interested to see your choice now. Right. What does a maritime lawyer listen to? <laughs> <laughs> well, quite an eclectic mix. But the the first piece of music I've chosen is by Ludovico Ein Audi called Divinire. And I've chosen it... For two reasons. Um, one is that my wife and I are big fans of the piano work of Christopher Diagon. And we were listening to a recital by him some years ago. And there was a particular piece he played. And I, I, at, during a break, I said to him, that was beautiful. And he said, well, you know, it's something like Ludovico Ainaudi, and that's the first time I'd come across this name. And I went off and and uh, downloaded some of his music, and and this particular piece just evokes such a sense of joy. And I remember listening to it, particularly at a time where I was sort of going through some confusion about my own career path, and. And listening to it, it just suddenly seemed to me that all was well in the world, all was well in my life, and and in a way, that's what what I think music is often there for is just to evoke that type of presence and sense of well-being, and and that's what this evokes for me.
that piece by Ludovico Einaudi called Divinire. And it was the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, Andrew Pike, whose new book, Against All Odds, is the epic story of the Oceanos rescue. And I can assure you, it's a riveting read, may I say. I'm not a fast reader, um, Andrew, but as you know, I got the book quite late because it's only just been published. Mm-hmm. And I think I did the whole thing in an afternoon and evening, which is most unlike <laughs> me. But I'll tell you why I'm saying this. There's a um, tremendous sense of an adventure, of a yarn. And at times you think you actually are reading fiction because it's so kind of unbelievable in so many ways and the spirit of what happens on board. And I was thinking while I was reading it, and I'm going to put this to you, I definitely think it should be turned into a film script. Can you imagine what a magnificent film it would make? I have imagined what a magnificent (laughs) film it would make. And in fact, I have a daughter who is an actor in London and she is speaking to whatever connections she has to see if she can get it made into a film. So I have high hopes for it, but it it really is the most gripping story. It is, and if you think about it, um, it's the other big story of the 20th century, isn't it? We we think of the Waratah, which went down apparently in more or less the same place, but they've never found it. Yes. Three years later, the Titanic. Mm -hmm. There was the Costa Concordia. Yes. And this to me, is as dramatic as the Titanic and would make an equally riveting human interest story, visually and human interest-wise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking to a number of the survivors in in this drama, to understand what they went through in the lifeboats, you know, with children being washed out of overboard and yes. grabbed by other passengers... I mean, there are just some remarkable stories. This was a a story of miracles. Mm -hmm. And in that sense alone, I think it it is just the most riveting story. And again, as I said, a story just too good not to be told with all of the stories within the story. And there were many, many cameos there that are just each worth telling. Yeah, well, all the people that you mentioned in the book, the entertainers, because one of the big controversies, Andrew, is that the crew, captain and crew, left the ship, despite what the captain said afterwards. There was no abandoned ship. There was no alarm. No one knew what was going on. They just left the ship. And the magicians and musicians were on the bridge trying to coordinate things, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Yeah, it was absolutely bizarre. This captain left the ship early before it became fashionable to do so because <laughs> the master of the Costa Concordia <laughs> did the same. <laughs> and uh, and it was roundly condemned in maritime circles at the time. And uh, the owners tried to put on a brave face. The captain said he'd gone for help. And quite frankly, it just made no sense at all. And uh, you will have read a story that he was actually pulled out of a lifeboat that he tried to jump into and again he sort of made up a half an excuse for doing that so he was always going to gap it so to speak Mm. and and it did leave absolutely untrained people untrained but committed nonetheless to to saving the situation on the bridge to manage the rescue on the deck and really to to shepherd people who are terrified out of their wits um and you know and it brought a number of heroes forward as these situations often do and um and there were the most unlikely heroes who emerged from this 
this drama. Yeah. Mm. I think what comes across again very vividly in the book is the storm and the sea and that he should never actually have set sail out of East London if he had any sense. But apparently he wanted desperately to get to Durban on time to save the company money. But that part, maybe you can just tell us the technical story, that part of the ocean, there's the, it's the Benguela current, isn't it, running down? No, it's the Agalis current. that runs yes. south. Yeah, so it's the warm Agalis current which runs south from Mozambique. And it's the strongest current in the world. It runs at six or seven knots. Uh, it's accelerated, in fact, by the contour of the land at that point. There are also prevailing southerly winds you know, from storms which have blown up in the southern ocean. Um, the continental shelf drops off very sharply sort of around about where that current is. And the consequence is that you have these huge rogue or freak waves which uh, have been recorded, some of them up to 30 meters in size. So in this particular instance, the storm had been coming for a day or two as uh, Captain Sloan reports. And by the time the ship left, there were waves that were probably anything from 10 to 14 meters. And general opinion is that the captain should never have sailed in those circumstances. During the night, the wave rider boy at the FA platform, which is off Muscle Bay, recorded average wave heights of almost 25 meters. My goodness. So, Gosh, that's unbelievable. So it was absolutely terrifying for anyone on any sort of vessel. And to be on a passenger ship which had a sort of natural role to it anyway, or an excessive role by all accounts, uh, because it was never designed as a passenger ship in the first place. I was interested in that. It was originally a cargo vessel that's and right. carried cars. Yeah. And then they, they reconfigured it. Yes, yeah, that, that's right. And so that in itself made it a, quite an uncomfortable vessel by all accounts. Mm. And uh, because, you know, passenger vessels that, that used to be cargo vessels don't have m things like modern stabilizers and so mm. on. And so that made it something that would have been susceptible to, to rough seas. And that didn't help at all of course no yeah and the the other riveting thing is once the rescue was underway when the ship started listing we have to remember that there was this huge swell and that this great hulk in the water was lifting up and down some 10 or 15 meters while lifeboats were trying to be launched and you tell very vividly how when the propellers were out of the water of some of the other ships some of the lifeboats were nearly cut into splinters let alone the people on them yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the other cargo ships, something called the Great Nancy, was had no cargo on board, so she was what's called in ballast, which means very high out of the water. So every time a wave passed under the ship, her, you know, as the wave was sort of midships, the propellers at the back would lift out of the water, spinning propellers at that, because the, the ships hadn't stopped their engines, the the rescue ships. And so lifeboats, which were clanging up against the side of the ship while they were trying to disembark passengers, were sort of sliding down the side and being nicked by these propellers. Gosh. And once again, just one of the other miracles that no one was injured by spinning propellers. And apparently the lifeboats very often would crash against the hull, this great big steel cliff, really, as it must have been from down in the lifeboat. And babies were taken up in buckets yeah. It's also yeah. extraordinary. 
that was one of the first things that struck me on the morning when I went onto one of those ships which arrived in Durban. I, I went on at, at about five o'clock in the morning to see who I could interview, the captain of the ship and possibly one or two passengers. And and there was a long queue of passengers waiting, still mostly donning their life jackets, waiting to get off the ship. And I happened to see a woman in the queue holding a baby and it was obviously a very small baby and I just said to her how old is that child and she said it's two weeks old and they lifted the yeah. child off the lifeboat in a bucket and um, you know that as it was described to me by a couple of mothers whose children other children were, were lifted off lifeboats and buckets was utterly terrifying yeah. some of them were lifted in fishing nets or cargo nets um, you know, the, the the thing was fraught. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, let's take a break. Right. <laughs> Andrew, your next piece of music, Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah. This is one of his famous pieces, isn't it? It is. And I've heard it performed by choirs, by all sorts of people. But this version in particular, I I love more than anything. And partly because it is Leonard Cohen who had such gravitas in in his own way and has this this beautiful gravelly voice and and somehow evokes the the essence of the song and the essence of the lyrics and every t- again every time i hear it i just have this sense of calmness and just you know all is well so that's my piece here Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the There's a blaze of 
So I tried to touch I've told the truth I didn't come to fool you And even said one of his famous pieces there hallelujah and the second choice of my guest on people of note this week andrew pike who is a maritime lawyer and has just published a book called against all odds the epic story of the oceanos published incidentally by jonathan ball and um, andrew i see the famous nicholas sloan captain nicholas sloan who was the salvage master of the costa concordia and they put a quote of his on the front of your book andrew's story portrays why the oceanos can be called a miraculous rescue and you've used that word miraculous a few times and it really seems to be somebody was on their side <laughs> we know who but nonetheless somebody <laughs> was on their side and how did you what i find interesting the book i found this narrative going through tremendously exciting and you can read it like a novel at great speed because it's such a gripping story but equally gripping in a different way is the one called the investigation which is a long chapter on just how this whole thing was sorted out and all the bureaucracy that goes about it and I was just intrigued how on earth were you able to find out what actually caused the hole in the ship because it was a sewerage pipe wasn't it that had come loose and everyone was covered in sewage in the downstairs areas and passengers were complaining of a stench yeah so I mean the sewerage stench was a sort of ongoing issue on this ship on and off by by all accounts my suspicion is that it's because it was originally a cargo ship and probably not designed to have 600 people on board <laughs> using the toilet exactly <laughs> so uh, so I, I suspect that the sewage system was simply inadequate and that's why it kept getting blocked but the initial hole in the ship came about uh, we suspect by a shell plate falling off the side of the ship and there was a story by one of the passengers on a voyage two weeks prior where the ship was leaving Reunion Harbour and that passenger with a video camera filmed the uh, uh, stone and mud churning up beneath the ship and we speculate that the ship touched the bottom and probably did a bit of superficial damage to the hull and in that terrible weather, 
the ship was probably hit by one of these rogue waves and a shell plate breached and water came pouring into the ship and it came pouring in through the the auxiliary engine room or the generator room and the engineers reported to us that they closed the watertight doors and fled and the only time an engineer does that is when he knows that there's nothing he can do about a leak so the mystery to us was if the watertight doors were closed ships are designed to stay afloat once that has happened why did the ship sink and it turned out that the engineers had been working on a sewage system which had been blocked and they had removed a pipe which went between the sewage room and and the the auxiliary engine room and it was a small pipe probably 10 centimeters in diameter something like that and there was no time to replace it and so the water level eventually rose to the level of the hole in the bulkhead and started seeping through to the rest of the ship. So in other words, the ship now had a slow leak. From what was an enormous leak, it had a slow leak. But inevitably, it was going to sink because the water was getting out of this watertight compartment. And But the only way for the water to get out was to flow back through the sewage system. And so effectively it flushed the sewage system back up through the ship and toilets were overflowing <laughs> and it was really a you know a, a, an ugly mess and mm. funnily enough one of the clues that, that we kept hearing and, and didn't know what to do with from passengers was that there was this awful smell on the ship before mm. she sank mm. and that only made sense once we actually learned what the truth was Gosh. and uh, interestingly the the Department of Transport themselves tumbled on the truth before anyone else did by an informal and arguably not proper interview with the chief engineer and um, and so they had they had this information but but we as lawyers didn't have it and the the crew were keeping mum about the the real issue for a very long time. I like the way you planted <laughs> a man who looked as though he was English but could understand Greek because all the crew were talking to each other during the interviews and sort of preparing each other, you said, and you got this man to go and mingle with them and but not to let on that he understood Greek and thereby you gleaned a whole lot of information from that as well. Yes, we did plant a spy. <laughs> and, and <laughs> okay, let's and call the, him a spy. The, the, the issue that we had was that we would interview a crew member and because there was this big secret about the sewage we weren't being told the truth and mm. so something was being withheld and you know and every time we asked a question that was uncomfortable there would be a you know half credible answer given that crew member would then go and muster with everyone else who was waiting to be interviewed there'd be this this caucus <laughs> in Greek yeah. and the the next people who were interviewed then had far smoother I answers which were now consistent with the sort of not very credible answer and so we had to find out what was going on and what they were, what was troubling them and so we, we planted a spy uh, we, we had a few mitigating things to try and stop this and and to some extent, it, it did mitigate. But we were still, uh, while the investigation continued in South Africa, we were never told the truth. Just um, 
Do you know why it, it seemed to take a long time to sink, or did it not take a long time? To sink? I mean, I, I know the Titanic took a long time to sink, um, but it was a good few hours, wasn't it, before it finally disappeared beneath the waves? Yeah, so the initial breach was somewhere around about 9 or 9.30 in the evening, and the ship finally sank at around about 1 o'clock the following day. So it was a, uh, it was a long time, and and that was in fact what gave time for the for the whole rescue thankfully and it was because this leak as i said was a slow leak rather than the the massive influx of water earlier on um so you know there was there was time but uh but time was really against everyone and as were the elements as were the elements mm-hmm. yeah and the the final survivors were airlifted literally with perhaps an hour left before Gosh. the ship went down. Gosh. And one of the Navy divers, um, an absolute hero called Paul Wiley, said there was a moment that came where he was with all these people on deck and he just to himself said, now I know how I'm going to die. <laughs> it's going down with this ship and all these people will go with me. Yeah. And, you know, it was that that's scary for everyone on board and he was he was extraordinary as he well. seemed to be a real hero and i think he was the very last person off in the end wasn't he yes he was he was um and he he was amazing he did some some really heroic things and in fact was awarded with something called the honoris crooks gold which was only ever awarded six times in the history of the country and was what i guess is the equivalent of perhaps an English Victoria Cross. Oh, yes. It really was a, yeah. um, an outstanding job that he did. Okay, now another piece of music. Frederick Chopin. So Chopin was Polish, and I have a Polish, or had a po- Polish father-in-law who passed a couple of years ago, so my wife and children all have Polish blood. And uh, I've always loved Chopin. Um, and in a way, I chose this, you know, in the memory of my father-in-law. And, um, you know, I mentioned Christopher Dyke, and he plays the beautiful Chopin. And uh, this was a, a short piece that I thought would be appropriate.
Well, there we heard Chopin's Minute Waltz, played by Christopher Digerton. A choice, the third choice of my guest on the program today, people of note, Andrew Pike. We're talking about his book that's just been published by Jonathan Ball, Against All Odds, the epic story of the Oceanus Rescue. You know what I want to ask you, Andrew? I'm intrigued by your job, actually. It says here um, that you are the head of law firm Bowman's Ports, Transport and Logistics Sector. This is what a maritime lawyer does. It's all about ships. And even reading the book, you realize how complicated life must be for a maritime lawyer. Yes, it is. Um, but I have to say that investigating ship casualties is one of the great excitements in my job. And I suppose to to summarize what a maritime lawyer does, we tend to get involved in ship collisions, ship sinkings, groundings, pollution. And then, of course, there are cargo disputes where cargo is damaged. There are contractual disputes. Um, there is a massive amount of stuff that happens on ships. Containers falling off. Exactly. Containers <laughs> falling off and and other ships crashing into them and um, containers spilling their contents and yes. having to be cleaned up. So uh, maritime law is a, a catch-all for all sorts of ills to do with ships. And investigating ships' casualties, though, is is quite a lot of fun. Uh, there's nothing I love more than clambering around on a ship. There's there's a huge energy about ships, and and they're just so interesting. And it it always intrigues me how people can sort of spend months on them at a time and um, and just commit themselves to this tiny little community of you know twelve fifteen people. Personally, I would never want to spend any time on a ship because I get desperately seasick. Oh, but, no, none, oh, no. but nonetheless, <laughs> I love clambering around on them. As long and, as they're in the harbor. Yeah. But, you know, when there's an investigation, and this one I have to say to date, even though it was so long ago, is the, probably the biggest and most intense one in which I've ever been involved. It requires an enormous amount of investigative work, taking statements, making decisions which are going to affect the outcome of litigation at a later stage, advising the owners, advising the captain what to do, calling in surveyors. And uh, there's there's this sort of network of requirements in order to meet all of the, the, the things which are involved in a major casualty. And it makes it very exciting. Of, of course, being a relatively small maritime legal community in South Africa, we have most of the lawyers in South Africa involved when there is a big casualty. And and that um, requires us to have quite a sort of collegial approach to each other. Mm -hmm. And so we, we do our jobs properly, of course, but um, and give little quarter. But <laughs> none, well. nonetheless, there's a, there's a large degree of cooperation between lawyers in South Africa. And it, it's simply because we we all, you know, fighting the same battle at some level. What I find interesting in the book is that um, everyone was the surprise, the astonishment. There's it, each person got the call. There's a passenger ship sinking with 600 people on board, because somewhere you say South Africa doesn't really do that. We don't have ocean liners sinking. I mentioned the Warrata earlier, which is a great mystery and it's still never been found. This one was right there in front of everybody's eyes, and I was amused by the uh, kind of 
astonishment and excitement of everyone that was involved and called out. And that massive operation as well with the helicopters, with the um, tugs couldn't reach it because of the seas and the distance and the other merchant vessels. Yeah, it was a surprise to everyone. No one had planned for this. The Department of Transport themselves had no plan for a passenger ship sinking. The Air Force had done some training for rescues at sea, but normally that's just picking the odd injured seaman off a, sh- off a ship. But no one had a plan for this. And it was just because it was regarded as inconceivable. I guess as inconceivable as the Titanic, which you mm, mentioned well, earlier. Well, exactly, because it was unsinkable. Yeah, yeah. And yet these these passenger ships do sink. And mm. if you look at history, there have been a number that have gone down, infrequent as it is. And it's not that there are higher levels of safety. I, I, it's just that I think there are so many more cargo ships that you just see more frequent cargo ships getting into trouble. But... This was the biggest surprise for everyone, and no one had planned for this. No one knew what to do with it. And everyone then had to run on what experience they had in the sector and draw on whatever skills they had and try and transfer them to this particular scenario. But what I absolutely loved about this was how South Africa Inc. mucked in. Yes. And, you know, there was this huge number of people involved. Even Bantu Holomisa, the then homeland, those so-called homelands, the Transkei, I mean, he turned out to be quite a good help because theoretically it wasn't South African waters, was it? Theoretically. Yeah, exactly. It was theoretically foreign waters. Yeah, and so yeah. our Department of Transport had no jurisdiction there. And because they had the so-called sovereignty, we couldn't fly Air Force aircraft over their, their space. So Bantu Halamisa who, who was then the, the president of the Transkei, had to give permission. And through diplomatic channels, that happened literally within 10 or 15 minutes, yes. where he completely understood that the Transkei didn't have the resources for this and that this was a humanitarian disaster looming. And to his absolute credit, you know, he cooperated completely. But even the Air Force guys were, were nervous because they knew that there were anti-aircraft guns around them, Tata. <laughs> and, yes. uh, and uh, you know, they, were, they had no idea what sort of reception they would get. And one of them, Captain Slade Thomas, reported that Holomisa met him personally when he went to refuel in Amtata. So, you know, really it was... Um, but everyone cred- pulled together. Mm. The local department in South Africa, the Department of Transport, the various naval and military headquarters around, everyone just dropped everything, no matter what, three o'clock in the morning and rushed out. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's it amazing was story. amazing. I mean, the the one story that I loved, some of the helicopter pilots that I interviewed who'd flown from, from the hinterland weren't even qualified. They flew unlawfully because they just wanted to do this thing but they had no maritime training they didn't have any maritime equipment rescue equipment on their helicopters they just went for it (laughs) look what happened (laughs) 
Andrew, just finally before I let you go, and I mean, I'd love to keep talking to you because I'm completely fascinated by the story and by this book, which I have thoroughly enjoyed reading. And here I am recommending it to people to get <laughs> hold of because it's really a fantastic story of an extraordinary event right here on our doorstep. But I see you have written other books, but this looks like it's your first real adventure book, although I gather you're a photographer and all sorts of things. But People Risks, a people-based strategy for business success, the talking stick, exploring life's possibilities. So you enjoy writing, do you? I love writing. That's my biggest passion. I suppose that's the way that I express myself best. And uh, this has been particularly rewarding because mm. it's such a different genre from, from anything I've done before. So what happens mm. now? Now you go through all the excitement of the launches and all that, and hopefully this this story will be brought back to life in many people's lives and i wonder what the people who are on board might think i mean i know alvin collison for example was on board when i interviewed him years ago he spoke all about sitting on the deck at this perilous angle waiting for the <laughs> helicopter but it'll be fascinating to see what response you get from for example some of the passengers yeah i'm i'm looking forward to that um particularly those whom i've interviewed and and the way in which i've interpreted what they've told me mm -hmm. um but what's interesting is that there is an oceana survivors facebook page and certainly around this time of year which is the 4th of august is in fact the anniversary of the sinking that page gets particularly active with people talking about it and reminders about it and and in fact uh, I saw another Facebook page what's on in, in East London and they published an article about this on the 4th of August and they had several hundred people commenting on it so there's it's still very much in people's psyche the psyche of those who are involved in it but also what has struck me is how many people you know, by one or two degrees of separation, know someone who was on this ship. Mm. So for people with, with hair my color and your color, it's still very much in the South African <laughs> psyche. And, um, and, and I, th I think and hope that, that people will enjoy what has been written. And because I, I've tried as far as possible to reproduce the drama of the event. Well, and I think I, I hope I don't re-traumatize anyone. No. <laughs> I think you've succeeded admirably, if you don't mind me saying so, Andrew. Thank you. I was talking to Andrew Pike, whose book, Against All Odds, The Epic Story of the Oceanus Rescue, has been published by Jonathan Ball. And, um, Andrew, before you go, what's your last choice of music? So my last choice is Ennio Morricone's Gabriel's Oboe, which is the theme from The Mission, which remains one of my favorite films of all time and again just a very inspirational piece of music uh, which has sort of sunk into my own psyche at at times of self-exploration and transformation and so that speaks to me of transformation and celebration and it's just again a piece that brings a lot of joy to me and many people philosopher you <laughs> Andrew Pike thank you very much thank you Rodney
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR 101.3